Seattle's Morning News. Health and school officials have been reporting a mental health crisis facing students statewide since before the pandemic. But a program from the University of Washington in Bothell is hoping to better equip educators to help struggling young people. With that report, here's Cairo News Radio's Sam Campbell. Dr. Robin Fleming is one of the people organizing the university's push for more mental health training in schools. We're very lucky to be living in Washington State, but we still have a lot of homeless students. We have students that have PTSD, depression, anxiety, uh, suicidality, and we can help them. Fleming is the co-director of the Behavioral Health Initiative from the UW Bothell School of Nursing and Health Sciences. It's a state and federal funded program that makes education models for school districts. Numbers provided by the university show it comes at a time when youth feelings of anxiety and hopelessness have skyrocketed. At the bottom line, the university wants to train high school educators, who Fleming says are expected to serve as more than just teachers, to an embattled generation. We've also had this massive opioid epidemic. We have had students that have been orphaned because their parents have died, and we've had some younger people die as well. And just the gun violence. I mean, everything and the chaos of the world these past two years. Fleming used to be a school nurse years before the pandemic. She says they were already stretched thin before COVID-19, and now they're getting overwhelmed. School nurses, for many students, are the only health care they get, which is wrong, right? But it's a fact. And so we need more school nurses. We need more funding for school nurses. We need more funding for mental health counselors. Across the hall in counseling offices, staff agree. Cricket Sutton is a school psychologist at Meadowdale High School. She says more students are dealing with anxiety now and struggle to find help off campus. It's really difficult to find providers in the community that aren't already full on their caseload. Educators in the Puget Sound region have been sounding the alarm, sometimes in unison chanting along a picket line. This fall, striking union members in Seattle and Kent demanded more counselors in schools and lower caseloads, often at hundreds of students per counselor. Leaders in the state have repeatedly emphasized their intent to better equip schools to handle students' mental health needs. Governor Jay Inslee. We've got to help kids with mental health challenges. We have to help kids who have some chemical addiction problems. To learn, you have to have those problems resolved or addressed, or you can't help a child, a child learn algebra. So what's being done about it? Beyond the university's program, Meadowdale High School in Linwood recently joined the growing list of Washington education centers to open an on-site health clinic of their own. We know they've had a mental health crisis for our kids. And having available in your school where you don't have to get on a bus and cross town to go to a mental health professional, it is extremely effective. Meadowdale's clinic is operated in part with help from local health care professionals, but it was propped up using funds passed from the state legislature. The clinic plans to provide mental health services along with physical, behavioral, and even dental care. Fleming says after her initiative delivers schools their training modules, it's up to the districts how to disseminate it. But regardless, she says more funding for programs like Meadowdale's and her own are desperate needed across the state. If we understand the value that these, you know, nurses and mental health counselors bring to our schools, we will find the money. I've heard so many times we can't afford it. Yes, we can. And if Washington officials don't allocate the funding? Well, look where we're at. We're not getting better, are we? We're getting worse. Sam Campbell, Cairo News Radio. Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And it's time to get a virus update with Dr. Keith Jerome, director of the UW Virology Lab. RSV, what's the update on that? Yeah, RSV is a problem this year. So RSV is is shorthand for respiratory syncytial virus. Uh, It's something we've thought mostly about in kids. 
So children under the age of two um, usually get hit pretty hard with RSV, and they often can end up in the hospital. And pedi- and, and our, our, our statewide pediatric hospitals are really getting slammed with that right now, and they're actually really close to capacity. Um, and so it's a, real, it's a real issue for them. What's a little different this year is we're seeing even more adult infections. There was probably a lull in that we just weren't getting exposed to RSV kind of slowly along all the time over the last couple of years because of the social distancing and the masks and everything. And so that's sort of back with a vengeance. Maybe our immunity waned a little bit. In an adult, it's a cold generally. But in our senior adults, it can actually be really serious. Um, and so uh, the, the last numbers I saw, there's actually tenfold more seniors who are hospitalized right now of RSV than you would expect really? in a typical year. So, so I thought it was a kid's a thing, but this is, this is affecting It's seniors. everybody. And, oh. um, but there's no vaccine? There's not, but there may be. Yeah, I so heard UW is working there are on several, one. So UW is working on um, There's several that are very close to going to FDA for approval. And I think the COVID experience has really accelerated this kind of work that we've learned a lot about how to make a vaccine to speed up the testing of the vaccines. We can use sort of the networks that were built for COVID to test these. So again, we're always looking for ways that we can take a bad situation and, and try to make at least a little something good. Yeah. Out. This is another an airborne. This is an airborne one. Right? It's the yeah. It's very similar to COVID. Actually, yeah. think about it the same way: airborne droplets, aerosols, and then surfaces as well. Probably a little less, but um, it can definitely survive on surfaces. So. Hands away from yeah. from the face is always a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I live with a three-year-old and a nine-year-old, yeah. so I can't yeah. avoid germs, even if I wanted She's to. She's our test bed for the well, latest yeah. viruses. <laughs> and, 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 you know, yeah. you guys, we're never going to... to we're like, not we don't live in a bubble, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and it's part of being a human is that we get exposed to these things. But that's a little different from just saying, let nature take its course, yeah. right? We want to keep ourselves well, the problem is, a new virus as healthy as like we COVID, can. Yeah. We're, we're all used to having colds every year. I mean, I, I, I would accept having one or two colds every year. And now I haven't had one in a while, probably because of all the masking up and distancing. But now a cold isn't a cold anymore. A cold sometimes feels like it, it could become a terminal illness because <laughs> yeah. of COVID. Yeah. That's how I felt last week when I had this cold, negative yeah. for COVID the whole time. But I was, I felt like I was on death's door. Yeah, I think this is all of us getting used to the new normal. I mean, a cold, um, it's probably worth getting a test. Frankly, it's so easy, right, to get mm-hmm. a rapid test. Um, there's a couple of reasons it's good to know what you have. Remember, there there are also just the cold viruses, things like a rhinovirus and the old coronaviruses, the ones we don't talk about anymore, but mm-hmm. that, that it circulated for years. But some of these you can treat, right? If you have COVID, um, particularly if you're in a risky group, maybe an older adult or have some underlying health issues, you, know, you can go get Paxlovid. You can go and get these things and actually protect yourself. But you want to take those early when they're most effective. So it's worth getting a diagnosis. Um, if you have the flu, it's the same thing. There's multiple approved drugs. Um, some are just a pill like oseltamivir. Mm-hmm. So, again, you want to take those early. So there's some value in getting a diagnosis at least to be sure that you don't have one of those somewhat more dangerous viruses that there's a treatment for. Mm Because if you end up really sick and you realize there was a treatment, if I'd have just bothered to take my rapid test, you're going to feel good. And this requires a doctor's visit. These are not over-the-counter. Those are mostly doctor's visits, so acute uh, acute care visits and, and, and things like this. So, are we going to see more could, of the at-home tests for like yeah, flu, well, yeah, for, for instance? Sure, for because sure. they, yeah. we innovated with that with yeah. COVID, and it's such a relief to be able to go yeah. to my pantry, grab one, and know I want that for flu. I want it for RSV. Exactly. And and they exist. Part of, I think, where there's been a little bit of a slow walk is, is again, like the rapid tests for RSV. That If you go to the doctor's office, it's something you can get. Um, 
you have the same trouble that we've seen with those with COVID that they're they're not perfectly sensitive that and that's that's doctor speak for they sometimes miss a case mm-hmm. okay so you have it and the test just said you didn't because you didn't have enough yet or you, you know something went wrong you didn't put the drop or it was, it, all the things that can happen mm-hmm. um, if they're positive you can be pretty darn sure you've got the virus but it's often helpful for folks who haven't spent a lot of time thinking about tests and how they work to have a doctor there to just say, even though your test is negative, you look to me like you probably have it. Hang on another day. Mm-hmm. Let's do another test and just make sure. Yeah, Th- those I've sorts of things. There. So that's why generally they haven't all just been thrown into the into the drugstores like we see with COVID where everybody's an expert now. Let's talk a little bit further about protection. You know, you talk about this is just a new normal. People get cold, this and that. And But I know like you didn't walk in with a mask. Dave and I aren't wearing masks. Where are your precautions at this point in the COVID pandemic? Yeah, I try to use... <laughs> You know, I, I always hesitate to use the word common sense, but think about the 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 relative risks of your situation. I'm in, I'm not quite in a high risk group yet, and I'm generally healthy. So, um, you know, my personal risk is low. If I'm in a situation where I feel like I might bring to a virus to a more vulnerable person, though, that's where my math goes. Mm. Okay, so like thinking about the holidays coming up, right? If you're going to gather, and and you should, you should see your family, you should mm-hmm. do all this, but Think about the most vulnerable person. So if grandma's going to be there and grandma's 98 years old and kind of frail, think about that's that's the standard we want to look for in safety. So maybe you want to wear masks. Maybe you want to keep the group a little smaller. Keep the window open. Give everybody a shawl. I mean, whatever. You know, if you want to be extreme, get a heater and take it outside. You know, there, there's things you can do. So you have to balance all of that out. I mean, look, the reality is, you know, I was thinking about this coming down. I, I get to work with some of the best virologists in the world. Nearly everyone I know has had COVID, okay? <laughs> Including, my, you know, I've had COVID. So, you know, these are people who know how to prevent this and and it's not absolute, right? And that's where society is now. But the flip side is when I'm on light rail and it's crowded, you bet I've got a mask right here. Dr. Keith Jerome, the head of the UW Virology Lab. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, my pleasure. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. There's a group of students in Maryland working to save endangered monarch butterflies inspired by someone they love. CBS's Deborah Alvarone has the story. These students. We are looking for weeds. At St. Joan of Arc School in Aberdeen, Maryland. There are milkweed. Are saving the migratory monarch butterfly. There's also lavender. This garden is one of about 3,000 certified monarch way stations at schools across the country. It grows milkweed, which the monarch caterpillar needs to live. They are pollinators, so they help the reproduction of um, flowers. But the garden might not be here if it weren't for two forces of nature. One is former principal Tracy Tokarski. She strived for her students to be better than they even thought they could be. Tokarski died unexpectedly right before school started last year. It makes me feel pretty awesome that... She like she started this and that we get to carry on her legacy. What's so special about the monarch butterfly? It's about charisma. Chip Taylor is that second force, the insect ecologist founded Monarch Watch at the University of Kansas 30 years ago. Let's see your shirt. <laughs> Plant milkweed. 
inspiring schools to plant these gardens. Give it a little push down. And organizing the tagging of the butterflies to gather insight about their yearly migration to Mexico. If we're losing monarch butterflies, we're losing other species. There's no, no question about that. And potentially losing lessons this garden can teach, says new principal Diane Kessler. We use it so so often to teach the children so many things. Caring for the earth, uh, the life cycle. After two million butterflies tagged, a million milkweeds planted, and 40,000 gardens certified, it's time for Chip to spread his wings. Why is it time to retire now? You're not 85 years old yet. Leaving the fight to save nature's icon of conservation to the next generation. Oh, and look at that. Go, butterfly, go! Go, butterflies! They're so cute. They don't need any urging. <laughs> no. 747 Seattle's Morning News, and now from the G and Ursula Show, which starts at 9. Here's G to tell us about what he thinks Michelle Obama would have should have done with her hair. Uh, well, um, she explains it very well. Uh, she was there to not draw attention away from her husband and his administration doing their jobs. When you see Michelle Obama now on Twitter, as a matter of fact, I was just seeing Michelle Obama on Twitter. Her tweet yesterday or the other day was talking about her. She calls her closest friends her kitchen table. And there's a picture of of she and and a few of her girlfriends. They're just on a hike. And you can see Michelle Obama's hair right then. And and it's interesting. Before this article came out, I actually looked at the art. I looked at the tweet and I thought, man, my girl, Michelle Obama is living her best life. Life. So am I surprised about it? <clears throat> no, because um, I have a black mama, black sister, black aunties, black family members, black people in my life. And I know a lot of black women across the country understand exactly what Michelle Obama is talking about. There's a lot of black women that maybe you're listening right now. You have gone to work and there was a point in time where you had to, quote, look a certain way hair has been has been a topic for a long time it just now stopped being okay to discriminate against someone with hair let's go back to 2019 you guys remember the referee that cut the young boys dreadlocks yeah, before before the wrestling max right it was the state of california that came up with an act out there of non-discrimination against hair so when michelle obama is saying that america was not ready for her to wear her natural hair oh, in yeah. the white house i mean were they ready for her to wear a sleeveless yeah. outfit? <laughs> Every yeah. action. I mean, the tan suit. Were, were the they ready for thing. Barack Obama in yeah. the tan suit? Yeah. I mean, so the scrutiny that they had to go through compared to, <clears throat> well, again, this is what they're saying is that America was not ready for that. Now, if and when there's another black couple in the White House, maybe, but I, I'd assume that Michelle would have loved to just go to work, go to the White House in braids. You know how easy that is? You put that and put your hair in braids. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I've never had braids before in my life, but you put your hair in braids and you can kind of relax for a little bit. It's comfortable. It's yeah. easy. Oh, no, I get so, it. But you need to, but, but there used to be a real stance and fight. 
There used to be employers, and especially in the private schools. And I'm talking about private schools here locally. There used to be a time that you, some of you private schools, used to say, well, you need to look professional. Yeah. What is professional? <laughs> what, what, is I mean, Dave, what, what is that, Dave? What is that look? not professional, well, I don't know, but, natural. Well, it's whatever yeah. society accepts, I suppose. But, uh, I mean, I remember when I was going to college, the few black people we had at Cornell wore their hair naturally. I mean, we called them afros. Some white people, actually. Adopted uh, Afro styles. That's my. That's what I'm curious about. What are the rules on hair? Was was Michelle was Michelle straightening her hair before going to the White House, or just because I'm not familiar with what she looked like before he got involved in politics? Well, I, I mean, I, I read her book and I saw some old pictures, and it, it seems as if as if she's always been a bit more quaffed. But but certainly, once she got to the White House, there had to be um, a certain character she had to play in order to be accepted. And we see this in TV news, too. A lot of black anchors and black reporters are now sort of coming out on Twitter going, today I finally got to wear my natural hair because my employer, and this goes to even, like, I had to put highlights in my hair because my hair was too dark. Like, they change everything about you, but specifically having an employer say, change this about you, and it's your ethnic and racial makeup, that it's, you know what I mean? Like, that's you. You're asking me to change something that makes me me. That's when it gets more personal. I think I think it's easier for uh, black men to be able to uh, assimilate because the the vast majority of us, we don't have uh, dreadlocks. Right. Um, But I think for black women, it is a lot tougher for black women in corporate America because they need to come in and their hair needs to look a certain way. Now, we know well, Back that, in the 60s for men, a conch was the style. Remember that? No, what is that? That's when we, what, we, That was a special mixture mm-hmm. that you'd put on your hair. That, used to, that stuff used to burn. It, and it was and, dangerous. It used to burn. When I, when I, was, when I was in the, eight, in the early 80s, uh, my mama used to put a little conch in my hair. That's when you put some of the, uh, the perm solution in there to kind of straighten your hair out a little bit. Yeah. So there's a scene in Malcolm Max, where you see uh, Denzel Washington, he put the conch in and he oh, wow. went and he had to go and get it out. And, and then the police came and they went to go try to put his head in the toilet. But anyways. Um, yeah. Well, I know the chemical straightening process for women has now been linked to cancer. cancer. Um, I, I just didn't know that for men it, back then it was called conch. But uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy that today we are we can show up as ourselves more so than we were when she was in office with her husband. Speaking of women, and I, I'm, I'm sure my coworker here won't mind me telling this story. Uh, Mara Dooley is a producer over there with the uh, Brock and Salk show on our sister station, 710. And I've been knowing Mara for seven, eight years now. I just found out last week that her hair is naturally curly. Oh, right. Uh-huh. And I said, and on the air, I found out. And I said, "What? Your hair is curly." So She's is like, mine. Wow. See, Did not I, like I, not I, like ringlets, but it's curly. If I don't, yeah, never if, seen it. If I don't blow dry it in a professional, oh, presentable okay. way. Okay. So let me ask you. I'm gonna ask you. First of all, number one, I didn't know that. And why don't you come to work with your hair curly? I have. I have. I've never seen Only it. recently, though. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like the Me Too movement, hmm. uh, the protests, the culture wars we're having, it's allowing, uh, you know, minorities, women, those who have been marginalized and told you are not acceptable the way you came into this world. Mm-hmm. We are now coming out and going, but this is who I am. Mm-hmm. And you just go and try to stop me because now we're going to put you on blast on Twitter. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there's power in social movements. You want a real shocker? Pain. Mm-hmm. My hair curls up at the back, but now I don't have it anymore. <laughs> So it doesn't matter. 
So you were one of those Cornell dudes with the afro, huh? No, I was one of those Cornell dudes with a lot of hair. <laughs> Until I decided did not you, to grow anymore. Did you have a perm, bro? I did not have a perm, no. I can see you with a perm. <laughs> and let him know I'm Dave Ross. <laughs> it's never too late, Dave. I used Vitalis exactly once. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. See you guys. Look too greasy. Now more from our conversation with Dr. Keith Jerome. We played uh, part one earlier in the show. You can hear it all, by the way, with the Seattle's Morning News podcast, which goes up at 930 every single morning and is available commercial free wherever you get podcasts. Uh, for those of you who are new to the show, we've been calling on Dr. Jerome's experience since early uh, 2020. He knows Dr. Anthony Fauci. And um, and so we want to ask him about that. We've we've also been asking him questions such as, what is a coronavirus uh, back in the beginning? We've all learned quite a bit since then. The biggest change that I've seen, honestly, is that the average person actually sort of understands science better than they did. And definitely understands virology. A lot, there's a lot of virologists around the world now, <laughs> most, of the, most of the world. But I think that what I've tried to get across to folks is sort of the process that the scientific enterprise and the medical enterprise goes through when we actually don't know all the answers. And I think people, it's easy by default to think I'm going to go to the doctor and the doctor will know everything. And the doctor actually doesn't know everything. They know a lot, but we don't know everything. And you sort of saw us make our best guess, guesses at the beginning and say, here's what we think this is going to look like, and here's what we think we need to do. And and the more responsible scientists in the group said, here's why we think that, and kind of here's a sense of how sure I am about these things. You remember this? You know, look, yeah. there were some things that were wrong, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. all about washing your hands. Well, no, you, you know. Actually, we, it's airborne. Yeah, yeah. you know, s- save the masks for the health wor- care workers. That was probably good advice at the beginning, but once they were available, it's like we should be wearing right. them. So you've sort of seen this process. We we originally were very hopeful that the vaccine would keep you from getting infected, right? Like sort of stop that forward transmission. Too bad biology sort of bit us on that one that it fortunately keeps you from getting Makes it much less likely you'll get really sick. So, right? I mean, you don't, you're much less likely to end up in the hospital or dying of the virus. But every, all the virologists I told you about a couple of minutes ago who got infected, they've all been vaccinated and boosted and gotten mm-hmm. everything that's available. And I mean, they still got it. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, you know, too bad about that. But that's biology. And for those of us who work in that, Biology is a messy subject. It's not like engineering or metallurgy where you can kind of predict what it's, it's going to do. It's a gray area. So I'm not too surprised that we got a whole lot right, but a couple things, a couple mm-hmm. things wrong, and, and so some then, dramatically so. In hindsight, looking back, were vaccine mandates necessary? I think that the initial logic around vaccine mandates was the idea was going to prevent forward transmission, right? You heard that. Mm-hmm. Uh, save your community. Protect others. Think about others. There became a very laissez-faire attitude once folks kind of understood the virus was going to transmit pretty well, even if you'd been back so that it became a much more fine. Don't get a vaccine, mm-hmm. right? You know, like whatever it's, it's your business. If, if it's just your health, truly, yeah, it's your, then you get into the, you know, like, well, well we still have to pay your health care, this sort of stuff, right. but at least you're, you didn't have the opportunity to protect grandma again. And you just chose out of selfishness not to do it. Now mm-hmm. you're, you're making a decision that is, 
largely on you. And I think, you know, I think you just saw that. I mean, the urgency around most of the big messengers around vaccination got a little bit less urgent. I, oh, I think yeah. that's just the reality. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, it's worth it to avoid. I don't know why this became a big controversy that you can still spread the vaccine when you have no symptoms. A lot of diseases are like that. Well, spread the virus. With spread no spread the, yeah. Va- yeah, the virus, yeah. I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that the vaccine keeps you out of the hospital, to me, that's the, that's the main benefit, right? And also... When hospitals get clogged with people who are unvaccinated, then those who are looking for things like heart surgery also can't get their procedures. And that was done. a huge thing at the beginning, yeah. for sure, right? I mean, we had to shut down as at UW Medicine essentially everything that wasn't an emergent procedure, right? If you needed knee repair, you couldn't get it. Did you feel like a, a target? Uh, I, I bring that up because uh, apparently there's still some enthusiasm on Capitol uh, on Capitol Hill for dragging Dr. Fauci before a congressional hearing. Uh, to what end, I'm not sure, but I'm guessing it's not going to be to congratulate him. <laughs> so um, how, do, how does the profession feel about... I think the profession felt bad for how Dr. Fauci was treated, mm-hmm. for sure. Look, this is a person who I know a bit and who is truly a selfless person who has dedicated his life to trying to make the American people healthier. You know, to provide them the tools to be healthier. Um, he was personally, like Tony Fauci, he, he's, he's a very comfortable, I'm, I'm sure. But what he, you know, personally and financially gave up to go into government work, mm-hmm. he could have gone off to one of the big biopharmas and become one of the wealthiest people in the country. And he chose to be a public servant. And to be pilloried for that, is just shocking. And I think the sad thing is that you get in a situation where well-meaning, smart people who we need in those sorts of positions go, why in the world would I do that? I mean, who's going to be, who are they going to get next to do Tony's job? You sound a little upset about, about this. I just think that that it's sad when people are really trying to do the right thing for society and really be helpful. And I don't know, do you pick on the doctors are trained to do something different, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. The scientists are trained to generate new knowledge. The The doctors are trained to communicate that knowledge to people and, and help them make good decisions and, and help them become healthy. Um, you know, politics is about organizing and, and sort of uh, shepherding human activity and emotions, Amassing right? power, and, too, yeah. And, and that can be used for many good things, and, and it can be used for, for, for aims that are not as noble. And, and look, we've seen, we've seen both of those throughout history, so nothing's new here. You're a pretty smart guy running a major laboratory. Would you want that job? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Does it depend on the administration in the White House? <laughs> one of the one of the wonderful things that that uh, that Dr. Fauci did was work very well with both Republicans and Democrats. Remember, he, he was nominated by Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. AIDS. Um, yeah, and he really helped educate uh, President Reagan on AIDS and why it was something that the country really needed to to deal with in face head on. Um, and he worked with, with Republicans and Democrats very well. Um, and, and so to see, unfortunately, a situation where now he's sort of pilloried by 
by one side it just is odd because the job is has really nothing to do with politics the job has to do with making his best recommendations on what's best for the health of the country right dr keith jerome the head of the uw virology lab thanks for coming in yeah my pleasure you can ring my bell, ring this is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien, and here's Rachel Bell, who has actually, you actually snagged an interview with the inventor of the viral butterboard? Yes, and thank you for saying it as if you actually know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so on the new episode of my podcast, Your Last Meal, that's out this morning, I speak with Tegan Gerard. Now, this is not the butterboard inventor. We're going to get to that in a moment, but she is the woman behind Half-Baked Harvest. If you're somebody who cooks, follows uh, food people on social media, you like cookbooks, you probably know who she is. Half-Baked Harvest has six and a half million followers across social media, and she has three Half-Baked Harvest cookbooks. Uh, And one of the things I wanted to talk about, this whole episode is devoted to content creators and social media influencers because I think there's a group of people who they keep posting about food because they want to be able to, you know, quit their job at the old mill and get to make avocado toast on the internet for a living. And then there's a lot of people who still say, that's not even a job. These people are getting paid money and they're not even doing any work. And Tegan says you're wrong. What do you think is the most misunderstood part about being a food influencer on Instagram? It is so much behind the scenes work. I mean, the work that goes involved in creating one single piece of content can be days, weeks worth of work. You have to create the recipe, you have to photograph the recipe, you have to video the recipe, creating an Instagram reel, you got to create the blog post and then write the recipe. And then there's also the business side of it. You know, maybe you're working on a sponsored campaign and you're working with a brand and you need to be doing that. It's 24 seven. You really don't ever have like a moment to shut off. If you don't post all the time, then the algorithm kind of forgets about you. How do you handle that? Are you able to take a vacation? Are you able to take a break? I'm posting every single day. With I don't know. I don't ever take a real break. You really do have to be on 24-7. Now, before we get to the butterboard, I just want to talk about this because I just think it's a little bit sad. I mean, as someone who basically only follows food creator content, I think the fact that this younger generation is working 24-7 and not Mm -hmm. taking a break is kind of the antithesis of, you know, it's like the quiet quitting is happening and people want to only work four days a week. And then this younger generation is like, well, I want to work for myself, but on the Internet. So that means... I have to be there every single day. That's right. Well, it's like, it's like anytime you start your own business, you start the corner store. Right. In the beginning, anyway, it's 24-7 until you can hire people who are just as good as you are. Well, I think the difference is, is that you eventually can hire workers at a physical place. But on the internet, part, your personality is the brand. That's it. So You're there's the never going to be yeah. hiring at the corner store of the internet. It's going to be like this forever. So in 2022, we can't talk about these culinary content creators without talking about Justine Doran. She's known as Justine Snacks online, and she started the viral butterboard trend. So in this video, Justine starts with this cute little wooden board that's shaped like a slice of bread, and then she artistically smears butter all over it. And then it's like she's frosting a cake, and then she puts some flaky salt, and she zests some lemon, and there's fresh herbs and spices and a drizzle of honey and edible flowers. And then she tears a hunk of crusty seedy bread and she drags it through the butter. So it's like, you know, instead of using a knife and just having a stick of butter, it's making it fancy. And this video has more than 8 million views. Okay, I guess I'll give you the inside scoop. Like, I think your podcast is going to get the the first truth. The butterboard was an insanely easy video for me to make. And I was going on a trip 
So I needed just like a video that was really pretty and really cool and really easy. And all of my videos are like 90 seconds long to like two minutes. And this one was 30 seconds. So I was like, oh, it'll go up. It'll do fine. It'll be fun. And I wake up the next morning and it's doing better than any video I've ever had. Uh, so the butterboard was a complete accident, but aren't accidents always the most serendipitous things? So she smears some butter on a board. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, she's on Good Morning America. She's on the Rachel Ray show. Almost every big publication in the country is talking about this butterboard, but it became a controversy. People were writing articles saying this butterboard is bad. Why do you think there's controversy? Because to be clear, it's basically just eating bread and butter, but instead of it being a stick of butter, it's smeared out on a plate. Yeah, I thought it was just a fun way to eat a stick of butter. And the internet had other ideas. (laughs) People are very worried about the bacteria and the health aspect. If it's a bacteria issue, then what about a charcuterie board? Isn't that the same thing? Yeah. And also, like, I think people don't like the idea of dipping it, which I totally get. But if you just serve it with a knife, it's essentially a charcuterie board, but like with a different kind of dairy. I think it was just a slow. Oh please! This, uh, this is why I'm never going to I'm never going to post my peanut butter and kale sandwich because <laughs> the pushback would be overwhelming. If you want to hear more of this episode, oh, is there lots more? Yes. Go to any podcast platform and search your last meal. You can go to yourlastmealpodcast.com or you can text butter to one eight 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 nine seven three Cairo one eight 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 nine seven three five four seven six. Rachel Bell, thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.